AC and Effers, it's that Atavistian time of the month, so, you know, spoiler alerts. You've been warned. Also, hey, many of you know I like to crack open a beer on this pod. Sometimes it contains alcohol, other times it's a near beer. And I've been selected as a brand ambassador for Athletic Brewing, a brewery that makes the best non-alcoholic beer around. Shout out to Freewave, their hazy IPA. I love it. And if you use the promo code BRENDANO20 at checkout, you get 20% off your first order. Head to athleticbrewing.com and order yourself the best non-alcoholic beer you'll ever drink. I mean it. Also, I don't get any money. Uh, They're not sponsoring the podcast. It's just a promo code that they gave me as an ambassador, so I figured I'd share it with you guys. I get points towards, like, flair in beer, but no actual money. So that's the transparency aspect of this, okay? Check it out. You won't be disappointed, I swear. This is a constant for me, is, like, when I sit down to write, I'm immediately also editing. You know, like, I sit down and I'm like, well, this sentence that I just wrote could already be better, as opposed to just, like, just get it out. <laughs> just get out what you need to say, you know, um, and you get to go back and edit it. Like, my, it's almost like my brain just is in constant editing mode. Oh, and wouldn't you know it, that is Sayward Darby, editor-in-chief of the Atavis magazine, putting on the uniform as player coach, writing her first piece in five years at this epic bastion to narrative journalism that is Atavis magazine, magazine magazine.atavis.com. Go subscribe. No, I don't get any kickbacks or money, so you know my my recommendation is is true. Oh, by the way, this is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. How's it going? In this investigative piece, Sayward tells the story of several Jane Doe's and the alleged sexual abuse and sexual misconduct and inappropriate relationships of several leaders and teachers at a particular school in the Los Angeles public school system had with their students. This is a progressive magnet school, and it would appear that there was an alleged culture of abuse among a few teachers, even systemic and pervasive. Several brave Jane Doe's came forward, and Sayward tells their story, and it might invite more to come forward. We lead this conversation off with Jonah Ogles, who took up the lead on this piece, getting to edit his colleague and pal at the Atavis. Sayward even said she got the famous Jonah memo after he read her first draft. Man, what, what must that be like to get the Jonah memo? I'd love that. Probably won't happen, but I'd love that to happen one of these days. Show notes to this episode and a billion others are at brendanomero.com. Hey, hey. There you may also sign up for the Up to 11 Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. This is where it's at, CNFers. I'm not one to hang out and scroll on social media, but I am one to put a lot of effort into my kick-ass newsletter that entertains, gives you value, and sticks it to the algorithm, shoves it right up the algorithm's keister. If that's your thing, sign up. Been doing it for many, many years. First of the month, no spam, can't beat it. Oh, and wouldn't you know, the first of the month is tomorrow, depending on when you listen to this podcast. I'm flirting with uh, just a short thing before we get to Jonah. Okay, just short little, short little thing, not parting shot worthy. It's just this little thing. Okay, hang tight. 
So I'm flirting with getting a new microphone. Make my tone sound a little bit warmer, a little more polished. And I played a segment from my recent episode with Kim Cross, just the introduction, uh, to my wife. And I asked her how it sounded. She said my voice sounded bad, that I breathed too close to the mic. And I'm, I'm, I feel like I have good mic awareness anyway. But above all, uh, I'm far too negative. I wouldn't, she's like, I wouldn't listen to your show. You're way too negative. I was like, I'm not asking for a critique of the content of the show. Thank you. I'm asking about the tone of my microphone. Yeah, but you complain that the show isn't growing. And I bet that's why. And then I'm like, well, I think people like when I'm honest and even a little negative because that's how I feel. She's like, are you, are you sure they like it? I'm like, I've got emails and tweets saying people like when I express my negative, ugly bastardized feelings she's like well i think you're too negative i said well thank you i'll take your unsolicited feedback on the content and i will think about it and then we sat in silence for several minutes borderline an hour okay batting lead off here is jonah ogles And wouldn't you know that the lead writer, featured writer this month, is none other than Sayward Darby. <laughs> I know it's it's a, a special treat for all of us. <laughs> right. So what is what is that like? You know, given that you guys are like you, you're, you know, you you guys steer the ship in terms of editing so many of the incredible pieces that come across your desks. And this time around, it's like you had to you and Peter Rubin from Long Reads. Uh, kind of helmed up the editing of, of Sayward's uh, investigative uh, masterpiece. So what was that like having to, you know, edit Sayward who oft, so often does most of the, ed- much of the editing? Well, uh, it was pretty easy in terms of just like workflow, you know, because we're, mm-hmm. um, we're yeah, in contact a lot. Yeah. 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 She gets it. I mean, she's, she's a tremendously talented writer. So you know this this story it didn't really take much editing in terms of you know me like chopping sentences up or providing structural notes you know there there was very there was very little actual futzing with text so so more more of it really it, it was more of a conversation that we were having just sort of consistently um you know, just talking to each other about things. Cause I, I, I know that, well, first of all, she just turned in a great draft. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was space, it, it's more or less like what we published. If I did like a compare documents, I'm sure it would be like 95% the same. I, I mean, I'd actually be curious what she thought of it, but I, to me, the process felt very laid back, very conversational. Um, and it really gave us an opportunity, I think, to, to really just refine something that was already really working and, and was already like very good when, when I got it. And when you get a story like that, then it's sometimes even worse because then the pressure is, can we make this a really great story? You know, when the, when it's a story that comes in and it's in rough shape and you just get it to like, okay, this is a good story. I think it's serviceable. Like, great. <laughs> yeah. 
my job is done. You know, I took, I took, I took a, a story that wasn't quite right, you know, and I'm not saying this like as a judgment on the writers, the writers are often the ones saying like, I can't crack this thing, you know? And so we, we spend all of our time like really sort of dragging it forward. And that, that wasn't the case with this piece. It, it was great already. And we were just trying to make it as good as we possibly could by the time we had to push it out the door. Well, I think what, made it so good as well and made made the drafts that that you saw probably relatively uh, easy to metabolize was how hard Sayward felt like she had to be on herself because it's so much like if you're like you're you're a dad coaching your kid's baseball team and you're gonna put him at shortstop and you're like ah, I'm gonna be I got to be twice as hard on my kid because I don't want anyone to think I'm playing favorites. And given that you guys publish 12 pieces a year and granted this is the first piece that Sayward's ever had in five years at, at the Atavis, but it's like one of those things like, Oh wow. The editor in chief uh, took up one of those slots from a freelancer. So I, I, you know, she, she knew she had to be that much harder on herself. So it's uh, I think that that really shined through in, in the work I imagine. Well, certainly Sayward feels a, a great deal of responsibility yeah. um, on her shoulders at all, at all time. Um, you know, and I think, I think she also, I mean, in the early days of this, of this story, you know, when it was just something she was looking into and we didn't know if it was going to be an atavist story or not. Um, you know, it was, it was just her and I talking about stuff, you know, and, and she had found out about the, these lawsuits you know, and there there was a conversation about, is this an Atavis story? Is it not? You know, because I think she, that was in her head even then. Did she want to, you know, use one of the slots? But it, it really, you know, it felt to me like it was an, an Atavis story. And, and I, I actually don't know how Sayward feels about this, but well, I know, I know that she felt a great responsibility to these women you know, which is any writer writing any story can relate to that, but certainly writers working on pieces where, where sources are sharing stories of trauma um, and, and sort of the, the worst things to have happened to them. Writers feel this great responsibility as they should to, to do right by the sources and do right by the story. And, and I don't think I have probably ever said this to Sayward because it became clear we were going to do it anyway, but if you have the chance to, to do that type of story for a publication where you have more control, mm-hmm. you know, where you, where you inherently trust, I hope she inherently trusts you know, me and Sean um, and Ed, our designer uh, and the fact checker, Kyla, who we work with, you know, she has, she has relationships with all these people. And so it's much easier, I think, to, to bring such a sensitive piece to people that you already work with and trust and you know, okay, the the advice I'm going to get from these people is going to be good advice. It's advice that I need to listen to. And that's not always, you know, not that it's, you're not getting good advice at other publications. You, you are, but when you're a writer and it might be the first time working with an editor, there's a lot of faith and trust built into that relationship that you have to sort of build on the fly. Mm-hmm. And, and and in this case, she didn't have to, you know, because because we're all here, we all we all love her, you know, we all want, want this story to be great. And, and so I hope that that 
resulted in in sort of a a a better process a process that she felt really confident in as she was working through revisions and fact check and all of that yeah as i'm picturing you guys having the discussion of like is this an atavist story or not i'm like picturing this needle going back and forth you know it's going mm-hmm. one way and maybe not and now it's starting to edge and it's going over the middle and like yeah that's going to be an atavist story so in that sense, what ultimately kind of tipped the scale and you guys were confident to be like, yeah, this is this is going to be an Atavis story? Yeah, well, for me, it's it is the the openness of the Jane Doe's that we talk to, um, you know, because you can look there. There are versions there are versions of every story. You know, every story has probably a limitless number of ways it could it could be written and edited. And there are versions of this story that are a Los Angeles Times investigative piece. You know, super easy to imagine how that looks. It could be three, four, five part series, like, you know, a little bit of like that classic newspaper trying to sneak in some narrative lead, you know, and then and then you just hit people with details in in the complaints. And that and that's a way to do it. And and you can imagine sort of like a an investigative outlet where that's what they they do. You know, doing a a story like this that has a little bit more narrative detail in it. But for me what makes what makes it an atavist story is the depth of the narrative and the scenery. And it's you know, and all of it in this particular story is really heavy stuff. You know, it's really heavy stuff. And so when you're when you start off reporting a story like this, you don't know if your sources are going to be the types of people who want to talk deeply about these things, or if they're going to be, um, you know, able to remember all of it, or or if the way they remember it will you know, fall apart as you start fact checking it. Um, but as she got deeper and deeper into the story, it became clear that there were not only opportunities to to add that depth of scenery and character that I think of as as trademarks of the Atavis and Atavis story, um, but that the the Jane Doe's were actually going to, you know, they were they were really incredible sources with great memories you know, a willingness to be, to be vulnerable and open with Sayward and trust her. And, and so eventually, eventually that's when the needle tips, you know, into the Atavis story. It's like, okay, this isn't just an investigative piece. This is, this is a piece in which we are going to get to know characters and, and feel, um, feel deep sympathy for the experience that they went through because of, because of the detail with which we will describe that. A couple months ago, uh, Greg Donahue's piece, you know, he ended it with this sort of metaphorical scene that really encapsulated what everything that had come before it. And it was a beautiful ending. And we talked about the strength and the power of endings in that in that metaphorical sense where it just felt like it really rung true. And with Sayward's piece, uh, she has a very metaphorical lead uh, with the mm-hmm. with the earthquake and everything that that symbolizes, when you're when you're starting to generate a piece of this nature, uh, when is it? You know, what is the calculus of deploying that metaphorical lead? 
I mean, I, God, I wish there was an equation for right. it, um, <laughs> so that I so that I knew when it when it was the right time to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, I I say to writers, um, and I'm not I'm not this isn't what happened in this particular case, but in general, like when I'm talking to writers about something like this, I will say to them, try it. You know, if it's something that's weighing on their mind, if they can't get rid of the idea, let's try it and see how it reads. Um, you know, because I think it becomes apparent pretty quickly that whether it's working or not, even though, you know, quote unquote, working or not is sort of a gut thing, you know, but I, I, I think generally the writer and editor can figure out is is this resonating with us or or isn't it? In in the case of this story, Sabre had that in the story before I even read it, and it and and I remember. Okay, so just walking you through like how I read this as an editor, I read two sentences, and my brain, knowing that this is a story about alleged sexual abuse in a um, public school district, goes, "Hey." this isn't the story I expected to read, you know, so there, there's a, a natural, there's a skepticism, right? My brain immediately goes, this isn't what I was expecting. So what now, you know? Yeah. And, and I think, so then it's on the writer to basically deliver the goods. And I, I think Sayward does that partly because just the writing is strong and good, you know, and I, and I think readers are, are more likely to trust strong, good writing and, and give those writers more leeway than, than if it's bad writing, which may sound like a little stupid and oversimplified, but I think it's true. <laughs> and, you know, so, so you keep going, you keep reading and then it becomes clear, you know, that, then she ties it into the story and you realize, Oh, I see what she's doing. And then, then what you're sort of checking your gut for, what I'm checking my gut for is, do I feel duped? Do do I feel like this was a trick? You know, was, was it just like a little, the writer sort of trying to be flashy or, or does it feel sort of like a, appropriate and in, in line with like the subject and tone of the story. And I mean, with, with this one, just like is the first time I read it, I think the note I even made for myself in the margins was like, wow, how, like, I would not have thought to do this in a, in a hundred drafts if I were the one writing this story, but it just worked. And I think she had done a lot of work on it before she said it to me, but it, it worked as soon as I saw it. As specifically you know the the final sentence of this lead too where you know it says like scientists believe there was a dense thicket of invisible faults underneath los angeles threatening to convulse the city yeah yeah it does i mean you know you do you do these stories and and they're tough i don't know i don't i don't, I don't want to sound um I don't know, like too sensitive or something, you know, but they're tough to work on. Mm -hmm. I think it obviously it's much tougher for Sayward to work on and and no one's comparing like Sayward in my experience to these women. Um, But they, they're tough things to work on, you know, and, and, and frankly, like the, the thrill of telling a good story is not probably worth it. 
you know, to to undertake a story like yeah, this, yeah. just so you just so you can like say you wrote a good story. You you do it because you want it to have an impact, you know. Um, and in the in the layout of the story, which we're like just finalizing um, today, you know, there's a um, you know a, a sidebar in it that that says like if you or or someone you know you know experienced sexual abuse at at this school or within the Los Angeles school district, um, you know, reach out. And and that's in there because these cases often occur in clusters. You know, there there are probably more um there may be more more stories out there to tell. And and it's it's sort of a you know, that's a, a part of journalism that I struggle with is you do these types of stories because you want to make a difference. Um, but in, in doing so, you know, that it means individuals will have to relive trauma and pain. Yeah. And then you're putting, you're pulling back those scars and then putting it in the hands of a stranger who becomes a little more than a stranger over time but then you have to trust that they handle it responsibly. And that's got to be really, really hard. <laughs> Not only coming forward yeah. and have to relive it, but then you're putting it in the hands of someone that you have to be like, I guess I'm going to trust you with this, not to not to mess it up and not to hurt me any more yeah. than I've already been hurt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a it it requires. I don't know, I get I guess a fate. Yeah in in each other you know um that that probably um speaks to sort of like the best part of ourselves to to be and this gets back to what i was saying earlier and the immense responsibility that i feel even just being like you know so many places removed from these women's stories but I feel it, and I'm sure Sayward feels it even more, and I know the fact checker did, and the copy editor. I mean, we all we all talked about this, you know. But we're, um, I I hope we did right by these women, and, and I hope they they feel that um, when the story. Allow me to interject just for a moment uh, for the remainder of this section of the interview uh, when I was speaking with Jonah. A little technical snafu happened to my microphone wherein the XLR cable jarred loose and then the microphone then became my laptop microphone. And you will know why I always recommend people to at least wear some headset because you will notice a stark difference in audio quality before warned. It's not good. And the last thing I wanted to maybe just talk about is how I think a lot of times, maybe maybe even uh, younger writers who are maybe just getting getting started and they're working with editors and uh, maybe they feel like, you know, what do editors know? They're not writers. And uh, and so often some some editors do some of the best goddamn feature work you've ever read. I, I think it's like Daniel Zaleski stuff for The New Yorker, who works with like David Graham, Patrick Radden Keith, uh -huh. like all those heavy hitters and yeah. everyone like he sings his praises as an editor, but his profiles, his one on Guillermo del Toro is like amazing. It is so, so good. 
And I'm so happy to see huh, Sayward, who like ushers in so much great work along with along with you. And it's I'm so like thrilled to see. I grant it, her sisters and hate her book is incredible, and it's so it's it's a great reminder that people who primarily edit are some of the the best, if not underappreciated, reporters and writers that we have out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a it it's a tough thing to do i think i mean i i and i say this as someone who who stopped writing a long time ago you know other than like very short things um here and there but um you know i so i i admire someone like sayward who's capable of doing both things because it it is a different it's like a different brain that you use with Sabred And I even talked about this sort of late in the process. She was reading the story and she would slack me and say like, I can't figure out which part of my brain I'm using. Am I using the editor part of the brain or am I using the writer part of the brain? Cause you just, you do, you look at it a little differently, but one, I mean, one, one thing I would say to writers, cause I think you're right. Especially like when I was young, I thought I didn't want to be, I don't want to be an editor. I want to write like who, who cares? Who's like editing the, yeah, yeah. Words. um, but Holy cow. Is it an education? <laughs> I mean, the, the advantage you get is, you know, okay. Uh, even a really good writer, you know, writes, writes what, like four big features a year, you know? Um, and, and then maybe a lot of smaller stuff. Like as an editor, and granted, you gotta most places you have to work your way up to editing features. But I mean, that you know, at outside, I was editing like two, three, four features a month once the website was going up, and that's just what it is. Is it's more experience dealing with problems and finding solutions to them. So you just end up with more tools in your toolbox, so you can say, "Oh, yeah, I know." what to do with this type of situation we had to fix that a year ago you know um and it really really walk away with this ton of knowledge about how stories are structured and 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 how reporting tricks and how to deal with sources and whether they're angry or whatever it is uh, it, it's just more experience i would highly encourage any young writers out there to spend a little time in the trenches as, a, as an editor if they can find the, the oh gig. for sure for sure well uh well jonah as always a uh, great pleasure getting to tease out this piece and it was all the more special that i got to be uh sayward's piece this month so as always uh you know thanks for the time and we're, we'll kick it over to sayward now in just a moment all right thanks so much brendan We are about to hear from Sayward Darby. She's the author of Sisters in Hate. She's a frequent visitor to CNF Pod HQ. You know that. She sees herself as an editor, reporter, and writer in that order. But I see her many roles more like a tripod. She can't balance without either leg. And I'm especially thrilled for her to show off because many writers, especially I would say emerging or maybe younger writers just getting out of school who might think that there's an adversarial relationship between writer and editor. I think editors are just failed writers. So I'm happy to see her get to show off her chops with this piece. Not that she has anything to prove, given how great a lot of her essays and columns and certainly 
her work with Sisters in Hate is. So, I, like I said, I'm just happy she gets to yeah, show off a little bit in the sense. I know I brought that up with Jonah a bit, but I'm really, I just want to underscore that. Podcasters, on the other hand, might be failed writers. Is that negative? Is that what my wife was talking about? God damn it. You, you like it. You get it. Right? Right? Start off by noting that Sayward's piece doesn't necessarily have some of the super scene-driven narrative elements we're used to seeing with the atavist. So that's the starting point of this segment of the podcast. Here is the great Sayward Darby. Executed. I, I just wonder, like, uh, you know, what's your sense of the piece, given that it doesn't have some of the the classic narrative propulsion that we're sometimes see with, uh, you know, pieces that have like the suicide race or uh, kayaking across the Bering Strait. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great question. Um, and, you know, I, I will say like, this is the first time I've written for the Atavist and um, I've always been kind of hesitant to do it because yeah. we only publish 12 stories a year. I want to leave those slots open for, um, you know, for freelancers, uh, I've just never felt super comfortable with publishing my own work, um, in the magazine. But when I started working on this story, I felt immediately very protective of it, um, because, uh, of the women at the heart of it, um, and how deeply traumatized they were, but also how brave and generous they were being with their time. And ultimately, I realized um, that there is a narrative here. You know, it's told chronologically over the course of about 25 years. And I and so I felt confident that, you know, there would be that arc of, you know, a beginning, middle and end, which isn't to say that everything is resolved. But, you know, it's it's not an inverted pyramid of an investigation. Right. Like it's it's a it's a story that builds as it goes. And then I also felt like you know, I knew that the Atavist, like our team could do it justice. And I just immediately, you know, I mean, I, I went back and forth. I was like, should I publish this somewhere else? Um, and, uh, and it just ultimately for any number of reasons made sense to do it in the Atavist. You know, that being said, if I had published it somewhere else, I might've told it a bit differently. Um, uh, you know, I certainly, there was a version of this story that was more tightly focused on one of the cases of uh, of alleged abuse as opposed to all of them um, that wasn't quite so sweeping, I guess, um, in its uh, approach. Uh, and because it was in the atavist, you know, I definitely felt the, you know, the, the imperative of making it as atavisty as possible. Um, and so I certainly looked to other atavist stories that I've either had, you know, the pleasure of working on as an editor or, um, you know, that I read before I came on board as an editor um, that were more investigative. So, uh, you know, the most recent one that comes to mind is uh, The Love Bomb, um, which we published last year. And there are similarities for any number of reasons between the story and that one, um, not least the kind of cultish aspect of what's being exposed but also that was a good example, the love bomb, I think, of tackling a story that if it had been published elsewhere, probably would have like the focus would have been narrower. Um, and the love bomb covers, what is it, 40 years, basically, of time. Uh, and, you know, it worked really well for us. It did really well for us um, and, you know, really got a conversation going in a survivor community. Uh, and so, you know, kind of took cues from from those types of stories. 
and you know we we also i will say you know try to do a mix of stories we we have the more sort of adventurous um pieces both of the ones you cited um you know one is contemporary one is historical but ultimately you know are are kind of more in that adventure vein and then we certainly do lots of true crime and then we do you know once or maybe twice a year you know a more investigative piece and i think one of the fun challenges of working at the atavist is figuring out how to make different types of pieces atavisty if that makes sense yeah um so uh you know there are certain types of stories certain genres of stories that naturally lend themselves to this you know yarn approach of storytelling um and it's always fun i mean no matter what the subject matter is and the subject matter is by no means fun but it's always like the, the the challenge of figuring out how do we make this feel like it belongs in in the atavist, uh, you know, as opposed to somewhere else. So so yeah, that was kind of the thinking, and thankfully I had Jonah um, to you know bounce ideas off of, and uh, it's always very weird to go from being the editor to the writer, but <laughs> um, but you know Jonah's such a great such a great editor and collaborator, and because I think it's very important to always have two editorial brains at least um, on something. We also worked with Peter Rubin, who is the um, head of publishing at Automatic, our parent company. So he. Uh, you know, oversees uh, both Atavist and Long Reads from a strategic standpoint, and he kind of stepped in to be um, the second editor. Uh, and yeah, um, I, you know, I'm proud of the story. I'm uh, nervous about the story in a couple of different ways, um, just not least because there's a lot in here and uh, a lot of accusations. Um, but, uh, but I'm also, you know, really, really proud of not just myself, but of like the Atavist for, you know, putting out this kind of uh, investigative work. What makes you nervous about it? Gosh, this is a very um, (laughs) emotionally fraught piece. Um, As, you know, any piece that uh, deals with abuse, sexual violence, you know, naturally is. I think in this case, I have been lucky enough to have several women, including the four Jane Doe's in the lawsuits that are at the heart of this story, really trust me with their time and with their stories and with their feelings. And, you know, there's pressure always in those situations to make sure you're doing it justice, um, you know, to to kind of live up to what they are offering. Uh, And so, you know, there are always just nerves about, you know, I I feel pretty good about the story, but any writer, (laughs) any, any writer, you know, right as you're about to publish something, you have that wonder of like, I don't know, is this good? (laughs) Um, Just because that's, you know, that's how writers are. But, you know, I definitely feel a lot of responsibility to, to the women, given um, how uh, incredibly uh, open and uh, again, generous is the word I keep coming back to uh, with their time. So there's that. And then I think that, uh, you know, I talked to dozens and dozens of people for this story and the alumni community of the school that's at the heart of this story is quite split. Um, You know, I talked to people who had either heard about the accusations or were not surprised when I told them about the accusations and, you know, have really been, sorry, there's an ambulance going by my window, Um, must be New York in the rain. Um, uh, you know, who, uh, really were, are able to look back on their experience and say, I, I, I now see things that are red flags, you know, 
And then I spoke to people who are not interested in doing that. Um, I spoke to people who asked why I was bothering to write this story at all, because the magnet program uh, at the heart of it is such a great program. And why would I want to destroy it? Which, I mean, just to be clear, you know, I'm telling a story of alleged abuse. The intent of the story is not to destroy anything. Um, it's to, you know, expose uh, suspected wrongdoing. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's systemic at that, too. Suspect- right. Yeah. Yes. And so that's the other thing is I think there are some people in the, the alumni community, especially who feel like, OK, well, even if we acknowledge that potentially bad things happened, um, we you know, bad apples, right? It was a bad apples problem. And those bad apples are gone because they've either retired or they've died or, you know, whatever, as opposed to are there maybe some systemic issues we need to be looking at here? So, uh, and I also had, you know, some alumni, it was really quite surprising, you know, the the whole ethos of this magnet program is, a, you know, about, you know, progressive education and, uh, you know, talking about things like, racism and sexism and classism and, you know, educating young people to be open-minded, to be on the side of good, right? And so it was quite interesting in contacting some alumni who, you know, their response, they, they were such stereotypical responses of, well, I think the fact that these lawsuits were filed so many years after the fact, meaning, you know, whatever the accusation is, really speaks for itself, you know, kind of the the tropes you hear about these kinds of cases and the type of pushback they get. And to hear that from members of a community of people who really consider themselves, pride themselves on being products of this education um, was quite frankly jarring. That's all to say, you know, I think that there will be a conversation that happens in the alumni community or, you know, parts of the alumni community And I think there are ways in which it will be positive, but there's also, you know, a chance for a lot of disagreement and I think pain. I think, you know, I spoke to people for whom hearing about these accusations for the first time, and oftentimes I was the first person to tell them, you know, I had many people cry on the phone with me um, about, you know, not because they personally were harmed or say that they were harmed, but because it just completely reframed the way that they thought about their education. And, you know, I went, I went to high school. Most of us went to high school. I didn't, I have no fealty (laughs) to my high school, you know, like I, I had a perfectly good education, the sort of feeling of like being part of something greater than yourself of, uh, you know, you were part of something special. You were part of something pioneering. Um, that's really something that a lot of people who've been through this program take away with them. And to have that, challenged, um, or in some cases, you know, for some people completely destroyed, you know, that's, that that's a lot. Um, it's, it's, it's emotional. So, so those are the reasons I'm nervous. Like, you know, I, you know, I stand by this story. I reported the hell out of it. You know, I have such incredible sources who were, you know, really willing to, to go all these extra miles with me in, in talking about these experiences. But I also am now intimately aware of some of the tensions that exist within this um, within this community. So uh, so yeah, that's that's kind of where my my thinking is <laughs> on the nerves front. <laughs> right. And how do you 
How did you go about navigating the real tough and raw conversations that you had with uh, several of your sources that you that you give pseudonyms to in the, in the story? Uh, you know, as they're t- talking and giving you very raw or visceral details, it can be hard to know like when to ask, when to sit back, when to just let silence do the thing. Like, how how did you navigate that part of it? Well, let's see. I you know I really started almost all of my interviews and this went for the Jane Doe's in the story, but also for pretty much everybody else in the story as well. And, and also I should say people I spoke to who are not, you know, quoted in the story, but whose information, you know, very much informed things by saying like, let me tell you who I am. Let me tell you why I'm interested in reporting this and let me open myself up to questions. So essentially starting from the standpoint of, I want you to feel comfortable with me. And in most cases, that was, it's, it's funny, actually, I felt bad for Kyla, my fact checker going through my transcripts, because I feel like the first like quarter of my transcripts is this, you know, sort of refrain of me doing that, right? Asking (laughs) or uh, putting, you know, saying, what questions do you have for me? What can I answer? Like, uh, you know, things like that. Um, So she's had to scroll through those. But um, but then, you know, with the Jane Doe's, especially, first of all, I, uh, I spoke to their attorney, attorneys, I should say, first, because I didn't know who they're, you know, I didn't know who these women were, um, they're Jane Doe's in the legal system. Um, and I had a couple of conversations with their attorneys. And same sort of thing, you know, who am I? Why am I interested in this? Like, why do I think it's an important story? What is my approach? And I think that the attorneys then were able to go to the women and say, you know, we have a good feeling about this person. And then what I did with each of the women was I offered, let's just start by having a conversation completely off the record where we just get to know each other a little bit. And three of them took me up on that. Um, one of them was actually just fine to kind of go right in and, and meet in person and, and talk about things. But, you know, those other conversations lasted in some cases, like more than an hour of just, you know, who am I? Like, what is, you know, what work have I done? Like, what are my values? But then also we talked a lot about boundaries. So I made it clear, and this is again, before we were even formally doing an interview, uh, you know, you can tell me if you don't want to talk about something. And if I ask a question and you don't want to answer it, just tell me you don't want to answer it. Like, this is not about my feelings. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And uh, I also made it clear, you know, I explained the fact checking process, for instance, up front. And I was like, we're going to do these interviews and they're going to be hard. Um, please know that like I am I'm here both during the interviews, but also after the interviews, in between the interviews, whatever it may be, like if you need to talk, like if you want to talk to me about the process, if you have questions and then. I'm not interested in surprising anybody. So the fact checking process will be very detailed and a person will be reaching out to you and going through everything in the story that's about you. And, you know, part of that is so that if there are things that you suddenly feel uncomfortable with, um, or in retrospect, having, you know, spent time sitting with what you told me, you feel uncomfortable with, we can talk about that. Like I might make a case for why I think it's important to include a detail in a story, But if you tell me like that makes me deeply uncomfortable that, you know, I just, you know, I'm going to lose sleep over it or, you know, any number of things, you know, I'm not, I'm not interested in doing harm, right? Like I try, I'm trying to operate as a journalist from a principle of doing no harm, particularly to vulnerable subjects. So that's kind of like, there was just a lot of kind of precursor conversation and um, question answering and boundary setting So for instance, all four of the women were very clear that they did not want to talk 
in detail about the actual sexual abuse they allege happened to them. And that was fine by me. You know, like I don't, I didn't need them to tell me in detail, you know, what happened, the fact of the sexual abuse. And I should say like some of the, some of the details are articulated in depositions and in legal complaints. So, you know, there was stuff there that I could draw from if they did not feel, you know, comfortable talking to me about it. But yeah, I just, I really tried to be compassionate um, and also to recognize that I was asking a lot um, of these women. And in turn, you know, I needed to give of myself, I guess, in, in a way that I wouldn't necessarily on a different, you know, a different type of piece with, with fewer kind of minefields emotionally, legally, otherwise. So, and, you know, the women took, took me up on that. Um, so they, I mean, the interviews, let's see some of the, I think the first one I did lasted about nine hours in person and it kind of progressed from one site to another. And then ultimately, you know, we were going through old high school materials that she had kept. And another one, I, I want to say it was about five hours in person. Another one was about seven hours in person. Like it was just, you know, these very, very deep, long interviews. I also made it clear that, you know, what they could decide on the circumstances of the interview. So, uh, you know, one woman really only wanted to be on the phone. One person, um, you know, wanted to meet in a place on a beach that, you know, she felt very comfortable at, and she asked if she could bring a friend. Sure. Fine. You know, it, it was like, whatever we need to do to make you feel comfortable with this process. And also at any point, if you need to get up and walk away, if you need to tell me to go away, like, please do that. I've spent a lot of time over the last now nine months working on this story, thinking a lot about, obviously, there are lines that must be kept in place between journalists and sources, but not every source is created equal, right? Yeah. And um, and in this case, it felt like I needed to bring more of myself to the table and also be willing to be flexible in ways that I just wouldn't normally think about. And it's been kind of a real-time education, honestly, in terms of you know me evaluating what I believe in as a journalist, what I value as a journalist, and you know what it, what does it mean to tell a fair and accurate story, but also you know, be the best person you can be in that process, which isn't to say that I haven't, you know, made mistakes along the way or whatever, but it's definitely like, I'm grateful. And I've said this to to the women, um, you know, I'm grateful that I personally and professionally like have had that opportunity to kind of, you know, go through, I don't know, just a very, very different type of reporting experience than I've, than I've ever had before. Was there any point during, especially the reporting phase, maybe even as you were writing it, that it felt like it was going to kind of fall apart and not come to fruition? Wow, that's a great question. You know, early on, I was very lucky because when I found out about the story and I started, you know, looking into it, the attorneys, the plaintiff's attorneys were willing to share some documentation and materials that really like kind of cracked the thing open for me. And, uh, and that's not always the case. So I felt quite confident from the beginning that like I was going to be able to tell a story. It was, it, it was more, it was less, how to explain this. It was, it wasn't like along the way, there was a moment where I was worried the bottom was going to fall out. It was more like for that uphill climb, I wasn't quite sure what sort of story this was going to be. And so I didn't know if any of the four women were going to talk to me. I didn't know if, um, and to be clear, there's a story to tell based, you know, on all these other interviews and on the legal documentation I have. 
Um, but it is a significantly more powerful and definitive story, uh, you know, with these women uh, willing to, to speak to me. So it was more like those first two to three-ish months wondering how long can this story be? How deep can this story be? Um, and, you know, I'm going to keep pushing and trying. And I ultimately, you know, all four of the Jane Doe's in the lawsuits. And then, you know, in addition to that, some other like key witnesses to the alleged abuse, you know, being willing to talk at length with me. I can't think of a moment where I was like, oh no, this is all going to fall apart. It was more, I really wanted it to be the story that it ultimately became in terms of depth and breadth. There was just this period of not being sure because it's so hinged on people saying yes, as opposed to, do I have access to that document? Like I was able to get that kind of access. It was more a question of like, are people going to trust me? Are people going to be, you know, willing to help me make this, you know, as robust of a story as I think it's possible for it to be? And so there was actually, I flew out to California in in February to meet with a key sort of witness um, and then also uh, one of the Jane Doe's. And I thought it was possible at that point that that might be the only Jane Doe who was going to talk to me. I got back to the East Coast and pretty quickly, one of the attorneys got in touch with me and he was like, can you come back to California? Um, Because one of the other Jane Doe's wants to talk to you, but would really like to do it in person. And so I was like, yep, turning around, coming back, you know? Um, And And you love flying. uh, (laughs) Oh my God, Brendan, I hate flying. And can I tell you the second, (laughs) the second trip to California, I had one of the worst experiences of my life. So uh, it was an it was an over not an overnight but like a you know later evening flight from JFK to um, to LAX and we were in the plane we're going at speed down the runway and then they slam on the brakes oh, <laughs> and they come no. over the intercom and they're like so one of our engines just isn't working correctly <laughs> and this is like actually my nightmare but I also think I mean to be clear my actual nightmare would have been taking off and being in a plane and an engine wasn't working correctly and thankfully that's not what happened but the flight got like moved to the next day and it was all chaos but to tell you just like how that is a, truly my nightmare. And under normal circumstances, I'd be like, not getting on a plane for months. No way, no how. And instead, <laughs> I was like, how can I get to L.A.? I have to get to L.A. <laughs> um, because, you know, I, I felt so strongly about the story. So, so yeah, it was definitely that kind of reporting process where I just needed to be flexible and available. Um, and, you know, luckily at the Atavist, um, in, you know, in terms of my full-time editing job, that was possible. You know, I could kind of do that. I could work for wherever. I got COVID right when I started writing. So that had nothing to do with the trip. I got it from my poor sister-in-law who didn't even realize she had it and gave it to me. <laughs> um, but uh, I was like, you know, locked in a room, um, trying not to give it to my husband, attempting to put together, you know, I have hundreds of pages of legal documents, you know, at this point, probably hundreds of hours of interviews. And, uh, and I was like, cool, my brain is not operating <laughs> at yeah. full capacity. Great timing. Um, but, uh, but even then, you know, I was like, well, at least I'm locked in a room and I have nothing better to do. So, so I'm going to do this. Now I, I, so much of what the Atavist does is what we consider like real, like artful journalism too. that elevated style that kind of reads like you know short stories even even fiction and uh this this piece has elements of of that too and uh spe- specifically with the lead which I'll ask you about in a moment uh but uh 
in our conversation last month, just sort of off air, you were talking about you were just kind of teasing out this piece with me and saying like this one has a more service drive behind it. Mm-hmm. And so you just given that it has it's it's got a slightly different sort of hook to it in that you're hoping that this might open the floodgates for other Jane Does to come forward. So uh you know, versus you know, just like maybe talk a little bit about sort of the you know, the artful journalism side of things, but also maybe a piece that is more service driven as this one, uh, I think intends to be. Yeah. Um, it's a great question and definitely, you know, especially in the kind of copy editing legal review phase, you know, there are, you know, we have to use the word alleged a lot. We have to use the word suspected a lot. We have to, you know, say, according to a lot, you know, things that don't immediately lend themselves to the most beautiful of writing, but at the same time, you know, are important from an ethical legal standpoint. And so, so definitely in working on the piece, I tried from a structural standpoint to make sure that there would be pockets um, and the, the lead being one of these pockets where, you know, I was able to not have to worry about that language quite so much so that the whole piece doesn't feel like according to, according to, according to. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, It was so clear to me, you know, once I'd kind of summited the mountain and I had like all the access I needed and, you know, sources had been forthcoming, I I so clearly saw what the narrative was because the, 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 the sort of terrifying thing about these stories is the way that they layer on each other and build on each other. And you can see you know, in these allegations, the ways in which it seems like the, you know, accused were getting bolder, but were also building on, you know, things they had previously tried with students. And so to me, it was like, oh, I see the narrative. And as long as I can execute the narrative and find, you know, again, these pockets that aren't quite so places where I could be a little more artful, where I could bring in, you know, some scenes some character detail, stuff like that, I ultimately knew like in my bones <laughs> that it was a good story right that there there was a story here that people were going to be compelled to read because it's pretty shocking and so you know I don't consider myself like I don't even consider myself a writer first I kind of consider myself an editor reporter then a writer <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um and um and I just wanted the material that I found to speak for itself as opposed to kind of you know getting lost in is my turn of phrase here you know, unique or perfect or whatever. So yeah. And then, I mean, another thing I guess that's important to say is that because so many people at the heart of the story are Jane Doe's, I could describe them to a certain extent, but there were so many sort of classic ways of developing a character that I could not use. I couldn't talk about them physically. I couldn't talk about them from, you know, what is their background, um, you know, ethnically, like just anything, like any identifying details were things that they made clear they were pretty uncomfortable with. So I had to find other ways to get their characters to feel specific and to get the characters to feel like you had a sense of who they are as people. Um, And, you know, without some of the more classic details one uses to do that. Um, So, you know, little actions, quotes, decisions that they made, ways that they, you know, articulated things. Um, You know, one of the Jane Doe's is, I mean, they're all private because they are all, you know, certainly, you know, they're keeping themselves anonymous as part of this legal process. But one of the four is even more private than the others, just an intensely private person. And I needed to kind of get that across 
in the story in more in more places than one. And so, you know, kind of this challenge of how do you convey who a character is as a person and what matters to them, um, you know, without describing them in a very literal way. And so, I don't know, I, I hope I pulled it off. Yeah, and it, the lead especially is this, uh, you know, just the uh, maybe 150 words or so of like uh, uh, describing this earthquake that happens. And it's a very metaphorical thing to what's happening throughout the story, but also in a sense, in a geologic sense, that anything below the ground, at least along fault lines, uh, that it can lead to something big down the road or it might not. And mm-hmm. so you kind of get that, that sense that maybe something big is going to happen, maybe maybe not. Um, so when you're, when you're considering a lead of this nature that is uh, metaphorical, uh, you know, what, what's the thought process behind, okay, I think this is appropriate for this story versus maybe just going in with like the, the second section, which just begins with like Grover Cleveland high school and, and, and so on. Like, but you do, mm-hmm. you do deploy this metaphorical lead that it does seem like it fits. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I I first think it's very important to say that my husband deserves some credit for this lead because in the course of of working on um, this story, my husband also was reading a lot of Mike Davis, um, a great urban theorist, uh, environmentalist, activist, Californian. (laughs) I had said to my husband several times that I was struck in my interviews with people by how the Northridge earthquake kept coming up, especially for people who, you know, attended this high school between like 1990, 1995, because it had, and sorry, actually later than that, more like 93 to 98, because it had a tremendous impact on the school physically, but then also just the way that students interacted with their space, right? And I kept telling, I was like, it's just so interesting. Like, you know, I I can't imagine what it's like to have this, you know, incredibly devastating event happen. And then it, you know, kind of fundamentally reshapes the way you interact with your environment on a day-to-day basis. And so I had just kind of mentioned that a few times offhand. And then when I started writing, I was trying a bunch of different like ways into the story. And I had some other ideas and he at one point said, um, you should really read this chapter in Ecology of Fear by Mike Davis that's about the earthquake, because like maybe you'll find some inspiration in there. <laughs> um, and lo and behold, he was very correct. But I also think, uh, it's a, like I read this one paragraph in particular about blind for us faults, which are a type of fault line. Um, and it's just like all of my creative kind of like wires started like sparking, you know, I was like, Ooh, 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 I see how this makes sense. Like I see what the metaphor is, but this also kind of ties back into what we were talking about. You know, what makes this an atavist story? I don't necessarily know that every magazine would have loved this lead. They might've been like, what, why are we doing this? Like, let's just get into the meat of the story. And to me, because this is not one person's story, this is a lot of people's stories and it is also it is about and i think you're you're absolutely right it's about like these are all there there's all of this information all these accusations that are just threatening right how is it going to shake who is it going to shake what is it going to shake loose like to me that was so important to the story um and i wanted to make that clear from go i didn't want it to be something at the end where i'm like summarizing and being like and the point was like i kind of wanted to set this 
seen literally because the earthquake happened, you know, the epicenter was just a few blocks away from the high school, but then also kind of this metaphorical landscape, basically, um, in which the story is framed. So it was, um, it was really just a lovely moment, honestly, when I was like, oh, wait, I see it. (laughs) And it helped so much because then I felt like, you know, I've kind of set the terms of the story in a way that's very clear to me as a writer and hopefully very clear to, to readers. And also, you know, having spent so much time talking to these women, I wanted to make sure that it didn't feel like anybody's story was prioritized or bigger than anybody else's. Like I wanted it to feel like these are all part of something greater. And it it felt really important to not therefore not start with an individual. Does that make sense? Like I didn't want it to feel like, Oh, well the first person, like the first line or whatever, you know, it's this person. So instead it's like, I'm going to kind of, again, set this literal scene, metaphorical scene, and then I'm just going to tell the story chronologically. And the earthquake is a part of the story, you know, literally and figuratively. So, but, but yeah, I would be, I would be remiss if I didn't say that my husband's recent obsession with Mike Davis has, um, you know, shaped my own work. <laughs> yeah, I love the where where you write about the a dense thicket of inv- invisible faults underneath Los Angeles like threatening to convulse the city and I was just like, "Oh, like that that's just so juicy when you yeah. talk about like you know what it's like potentially foreshadowing uh in small part it is and then in big part it could be like this thing that essentially shakes everything to the ground and you start with a story and it kind of reminded me of when greg donahue's story from a couple months ago where he like kind of ends on something that's more metaphorical that kind of tied a bow around uh uh, around the uh, around him so it's like kind of it's interesting those creative choices of where to deploy these kinds of, you know, artful renditions. And uh, it's a, it's a really cool, like, I don't know, exercise in what you can do with it in nonfiction. Maybe every other place I might've pitched this story would have been totally fine with it, but it felt like this lead feels advocacy to me. You know, it feels like, okay, we're doing something a little different here from, you know, a narrative nonfiction perspective, but then ultimately like not in any way losing sight of like what is a public interest investigation. Right. And, uh, and then there were little ways along the way to also kind of bring sort of uh, not, not literal mention, but kind of like oblique reference to an earthquake back into the story. And, you know, talking about things like aftershocks and exposure to, you know, harm and um, damage and things like that. And I do think, I mean, and there's a quote at the end of the story from one of the attorneys about how they are very confident that there are more women out there who um, had similar experiences. And I'm confident of this as well. Um, I am aware of at least two who I think could have claims um, if they wanted to make them, but they, you know, didn't want to at this point, um, you know, didn't necessarily want to speak to me at this point. On the one hand, I hope that there is no one else because I don't want there to have been anyone else who, you know, suffered this alleged abuse. But on the other hand, if there are those people out there, like, I think that this kind of story shows that it's not isolated. You know, there's a pattern here. There's solidarity here amongst survivors and the possibility of, you know, some of these cracks widening and ultimately, yeah, shaking, shaking things loose. 
also everybody should just read Mike Davis. He's the best. He did an incredible <laughs> interview in the LA Times recently. Um, he's he's dying of cancer. Um, and his interview, just Q&A in the LA Times was just fantastic. He had one of the best answers I've heard anybody give about like why 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 progressive activism in the face of like almost certain failure. <laughs> um, and uh, he's just a, a really, in, in some ways, like his kind of like ethos is also informing this story. I think uh, with just a couple more things, and I, I think uh, I think it would be really illuminating for you to talk about uh, what it was like, uh, you know, having to essentially kind of like take your editor hat off and then go in, you know, being the, the reporter and, you know, pure reporter and journalist you are and having to set that editor hat aside for a bit and surrender to to other people giving you the say word treatment. So uh, just like, what was that experience like for you to have to uh, navigate that given your strong editor tendencies? I mean, I love being edited. I love being fact-checked. Um, I love being legal reviewed. Like I just never assume that I have all the answers. Um, and I always assume, no, I mean, I assume that I don't have all the answers. I assume that I've made errors. And I also assume that there are just things I don't see that other people will see. Um, you know, I just firmly, firmly believe that this kind of journalism, I mean, all journalism is collaborative, but this kind of like deep reporting and, you know, sort of more elegant writing um, is, is a collaborative project. On the one hand, like, definitely, I had to you know, take my editor hat off and be like, I'm just a reporter and writer in this situation. <laughs> but at the same time, for me, I don't know, I, I don't, I don't mind that because I so enjoy being on the other side of the the divide, if you will. <laughs> yeah. um, because I, I enjoy all of the things that come with being a writer. Um, and I think I said this before on the podcast, like I, I think that it makes me a better editor, ultimately, to experience all the things that a writer you know, in the hands of atavist editors experiences working on a story because it builds empathy. Um, it also, you know, shows me ways in which, you know, could we be doing things better? Could we be doing things differently? What are we not thinking about? I think that that is really crucial, honestly, to, to the whole enterprise. I think that, you know, the hardest thing for me on the reporting and writing front in terms of like having editor brain is that, and this is just, this is a constant for me, is like when I sit down to write, I'm immediately also editing. You know, like I sit down and I'm like, well, this sentence that I just wrote could already be better as opposed to just like, just get it out. <laughs> just yeah, get out what yeah. you need to say, you know, um, and you get to go back and edit it. Like my, it's almost like my brain just is in constant editing mode. Yeah, it's hard um, to put up that firewall when you have such exactly, editor tendencies exactly. that you can just be so paralyzed by your yes. own editor brain that you can't go forward. <laughs> yes, I think that that's I think that that's absolutely absolutely right. And and so, you know, I think that's the biggest struggle for me um in these in these moments, but really like I just so enjoy and I mean, I know early on I said, you know, I've always been very hesitant to write for The Atavist um, for any number of reasons, mostly having to do with wanting to make sure that, you know, freelancers are, you know, having all the opportunities they they can to publish with us. At the same time, I've been at this for five years, and this is the first time I've been on the other side of things. And, you know, I've now received a memo from Jonah, you know, and like I've gotten, you know, <laughs> notes on my work. And like it's it's a it's a helpful it really is like I don't want to do it all the time, um, but 
but like, I think that um, there really, there is something to be said for like really understanding every facet of what we do. It's and, like a director. Yeah. Oh, it's like an actor becoming like going behind the camera to be a director. Mm-hmm. And it makes him like a little more empathetic to the actor experience and vice versa. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I, I think ultimately like it, it worked out, but yeah, I mean, if anything, I think I'm just harder on myself as a reporter and writer because I have editor brain, you know? Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, and maybe that's for the best. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but that's, it definitely feel like, I feel like I'm just, you know, applying a lot of pressure to myself um, with that extra layer of, you know, kind of journalistic experience. It's like, I've worn a lot of hats. And in this case, I've got all of them on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, uh, and, you know, figuring out how to like actually produce something under all that pressure I'm putting on myself, um, you know, is tricky, but, but, but really like, I think the nature of this story, I also like, I felt very safe the whole time, like kind of knowing whose hands this was in, you know, really like sharing a collective vision for it. And, and that was just such a nice, um, experience. Very nice. Well, it, well, Sarah, this is it, your opportunity now to, uh, offer a recommendation to the audience, something that I like to, uh, ask guests when they're the featured guest of the show, uh, to bring the conversation down for a landing. And, uh, it can be anything, uh, anything, it can be fun, an app, a TV show, a pair of socks you're excited about, brand of coffee. Uh, so the ball's in your court. Like what might you recommend to people out there as we bring this down for a landing? Oh man. Okay. Well, first of all, definitely Mike Davis. Um, <laughs> cause I just <laughs> recommended him, um, reading any Mike Davis, ecology of fear, the book that the Northridge earthquake chapters in is fantastic. Also the Q and a in the LA times. Like, I think he's just a really, a really brilliant person. Um, and I'm, you know, not by any means the first person to say that. So, um, so yeah, I think that, and then, um, my other recommendation would be, I had the pleasure last weekend of spending time with my dear friend, um, from college, her husband and their two-year-old, you know, Sesame street, that show still slaps. Like, honestly, (laughs) you, everybody needs some Sesame street in their lives. And even if you don't have a kid, like I watched so much Sesame street over the course of like three or four days. And I just came away feeling like good about things, (laughs) like good about there's a whole like segment about what it means to vote and like why voting is important. And like, of course, you're, you know, you're conveying it in the most basic terms to, you know, a two year old. I loved Sesame Street when I was a kid. I've always loved the Muppets, which, you know, I realize these are sort of separate, but whatever. Um, But this was my first time, like really just watching Sesame Street um, uh, kind of constantly, really um, on a loop um, as an adult. And man, I just I recommend Sesame Street to everybody. It's it's just so good. (laughs) I remember feeling a a similar feeling to that not too long ago. And I watched and this is like within the last year or two of an episode of uh, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. I'm like, I walked away from that. I'm like, I feel. I feel better about myself. I can, I can do this. I, I can live. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, the, the thing that's always been brilliant about Sesame Street is there's so much in it for adults too, you know? And I mean, a few months ago, the internet, you know, went crazy for Elmo's beef with Rocco the Rock, um, which I can <laughs> confirm is just as good when you're watching like the full series. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think that, I like in little doses, you're kind of thinking more about it from that adult perspective. And when you're watching it full out and watching it with a two-year-old, it's like, 
even even the parts that are just very straightforward i don't know it just it kind of filled me with a lot of joy and hope <laughs> um and uh it was yeah it was great so um sesame street go watch it <laughs> fantastic well it, this was great to to talk to you at, at, at a greater length than we normally do about this incredible piece your fir- first one for Adivis in five years so i'll look forward to the next one in 2027 say words so. it will be no sooner <laughs> <laughs> awesome well thanks so much say word amazing work and uh, i wish you the best of luck with it thanks brendan oh it happens to you in efforts you're going to be heading over, okay? You Listen, you're going to go to magazine.adivis.com, and I'd like you to subscribe, okay? It's 25 bucks a year, not too shabby considering the great bang-for-buck ratio. No, I don't get any money or kickbacks. You may think I'm a moron, and you'd be right. But I like being transparent. Is that moron comment negative? Is that what my wife is talking about? Hey, also, check out athleticbrewing.com and use Brendan020 for a discount on some tasty brews. Uh, Again, I don't get any money. I get, like, points towards free stuff. So so I just get to, like, occasionally, once I redeem enough, I can get a couple six-packs. Like, we're not talking kegs and we're not talking shares in a company. We're uh, we're just kind of spreading the word for some a great alternative to alcoholic consumption that uh, can help you out, make you not feel like shit. I, for one, suffer hangovers that will last upward of two to three days if I so much as procure a buzz. So having tasty N.A. near beers kicking around alleviates the FOMO of not drinking that that, that strikes me, and it also spares me hell and shame as I wake up the next day, not wondering if I offended anybody. I always wake up the next day. I'm like, shit, did I say something stupid? Like, I I just, I I feel like I did something wrong. Even though when I objectively know I didn't do anything wrong, sometimes I'm like, God, did I, did I say something stupid? Did I ask a dumb question? And that's usually why I just ask questions. And that's why I just kind of nod and get people talking. And I don't offer much because uh, eventually you get me talking long enough. And I will say something, they'd be like, I don't feel like hanging out with this person any longer. My past performances in the shame department are legendary. BrendanOmero.com is where you get the newsletter. New one drops tomorrow, September 1st, depending on when you listen to this episode. Lots of cool stuff any writer would enjoy. First of the month, no spam. So far as I can tell, you can't beat it. I don't have much by way of a parting shot today. Okay, but I will have one in a couple days because I'm coming right back, right back with a great interview with the incredible biographer, David Marinus, legendary biographer about his new book, Path Lit by Lightning, about one of the greatest athletes of the 20th century in Jim Thorpe. So stay wild, CNFers, and if you can do, interview. See ya. See ya.